Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. The push and pull of our daily activities keeps us so incredibly busy. I think sometimes we can lose track of the passionate origins that inform how and why we got into the green industry in the first place. Most of us will agree that the basic thinking that we had at the beginning of our careers has slowly evolved as we've put our work into practice. This is, of course, a healthy thing and helps us to develop our skills, cope with work turmoil, and make progress in our thinking. And I think if we have a certain awareness and are able to be flexible, innovative, and forward-thinking, this can assist us in making our own luck over the long run. With this evolution in thinking, most of us would also agree that we take pride in the work that we're doing and want to feel a certain confidence in the work of our representative organizations to make their own efforts to provide information to residential and commercial clients about the benefits of our green industry work in industry lobbying efforts to direct legislation towards stewardship of the environment and, of course, in keeping with best practices. With this in mind, and knowing that there is so much that needs to change in all facets of society, not just in our little corner of the world, I want to take a few minutes here to try to encapsulate a top 10 list of items that we in the landscape trades should focus upon in order to direct positive change. In some instances, the industry, I think, is in a diametric opposition with the direction our state and national organizations are taking us. We talked about this a bit in the hijacking of our industry episode, in which I'm trying to provide some clarity and definition to what I feel is a very basic and fundamental problem that we're facing. Let's look at 10 areas of concern that need comprehensive change. The first is the immediate need for sweeping immigration reform. This is unfortunately, I think, our most fundamental and confusing industry hypocrisy. We talked about this before in the podcast, about how statistics will show that, for the most part, landscape company owners tend to be more conservative, as you might expect. This is not in itself any kind of judgment, really, if the conservative movement hadn't recently just gone completely off the rails. But I think because of that, it's one facet of specific concern. With that noted, recent lawn and landscape survey statistics indicate that almost 60% of business owners respond as being conservative, and over 75% indicate that they voted for Trump. I don't know how that has changed since January 6th, but that's a whole nother discussion. Few would argue with the fact that we rely heavily on the immigrant community, principally folks from Mexico and Central America, to do a great bit of the heavy lifting for us. They make up the greatest percentage of our production labor force, and most of us would recognize that these are hardworking, honest people raising children and trying to make a living here in America. At the same time, a hidden aspect of our business is the ongoing sublimation of the fact that much of our workforce is undocumented. Please understand that I'm not trying to say that all of these folks should be made legal, but only that the forceful rhetoric that we've been hearing from conservative pundits supported counterintuitively by our own industry leaders, is to have these folks rounded up and deported 
I can't think of any other subject that rankles me more, if for no other reason than it seems fundamentally self-defeating. Think about the actual outcome of that kind of ridiculous and disingenuous thinking. Even in the remote consideration that it was at all possible to actually gather and deport this segment of the population entirely, virtually all of our construction and landscaping work would grind to an immediate halt. Why that can be seen as a good outcome by landscape industry owners is beyond me. How does this even make sense? This kind of thinking from our own industry leadership undermines not only our professionalism and credibility, but it beggars our basic sensibility as business people, not to mention as Americans welcoming immigrants to our shores. Rather than vilifying the folks that we depend on every day to help us manage our outdoor production, we should be directing our efforts instead toward reinforcing their ability to stay here with us. We need these folks, and they need us. The fact is, you know that our Hispanic brothers and sisters work harder than almost anyone you will see anywhere. Statistics tell us that Latinos do not commit crimes or cause societal problems at any greater rate than any other segment of society. So what can be done? First, we should take immediate steps to lobby and strategically support an expansion of the H-2B program, reinforcing the path to citizenship and the ability for incoming workers to see clear ways to bring themselves to legal citizenship. Currently, Congress has set the H-2B cap at $66,000 per fiscal year, with up to $33,000 for workers who begin employment in the first half of the fiscal year from October October 1st to March 31st, and the remaining 33,000 for workers who begin employment in the second half of the year, April 1st to September 30th. This cap needs to be raised to at least 100,000 and the entire process streamlined and redefined to include a path to citizenship based upon a reliable multi-year work record for the applying individual. As an industry, we need to recognize the demands that are being placed upon us, and any reasonable business owner in the landscape industry will tell you that the singular biggest problem is finding hardworking, skilled production personnel. These people are in our midst and willing to work and wanting to build and earn an honest living. We need to take steps to bring the people we need into the fold. Secondly, the lack of diversity in our industry is another subject that needs to be put under the hot lights. It's striking to me that in every landscape management picture I see is basically a bunch of old fat white men. As an old fat white man myself, I can fairly say that. Statistics will show that only 9% of all landscape personnel are women, while 91% are men, with the average age of an employed landscaper being 41 years old. The most common ethnicity of landscapers is oddly white, 67%, followed by Hispanic or Latino, 18%, black or African-American, 10%. Personally, and knowing the industry, I think that 18% Latino number is skewed by a lack of undocumented survey participation, and the figure is likely four times that, or more. How do we bring more diversity into the industry? One possibility is to increase outreach to high schools and community colleges. Industry associations can support the expansion and reinforcement of shop classes and hands-on outdoor learning experiences. Programs can be assembled to sell the idea of outdoor craftsmanship as a worthy and rewarding skill. Proactive solicitation of female candidates can also be formalized through APLD and nursery programs. Women candidates should be encouraged to seek leadership positions regionally and in national positions within the industry. Working professional landscape managers and horticultural professionals can be encouraged to submit editorials and prof profile information in the national magazines. 
there was already a robust discussion within the NALP women's group, and a number of existing resources work toward this. LGBT workers need to feel safe and encouraged through formalized processes within each company related to employee behavior and documentation. It is somewhat controversial to say, but the reality is that our industry is largely male and underpinned in large part by a traditional thinking Hispanic cultural base. This does not necessarily point to a welcome atmosphere for LGBT workers, and as such needs to be articulated clearly to the staff in an atmosphere in which the ramifications for negative behavior are well understood and reinforced. The third and one of the easiest problems that we can correct is to recognize and discourage the lazy marketing of calendar care. This is just a lazy way of doing business. Landscape care businesses organized around this kind of method so as to art automate their processes and make an easy and repeated production work cycle. It makes sense. When we think of how much chemical product is put down for landscapes annually, we need to think in terms of exponential tonnage. Over 1 billion pounds of pesticide are used in the United States each year, and approximately 5.6 billion pounds are used worldwide. It's been estimated that as many as 25 million agricultural workers worldwide experience unintentional pesticide poisonings each year. In a large prospective study of pesticide users in the United States, the Agricultural Health Study, it was estimated that 16% of the participants had at least one pesticide poisoning or an unusually high pesticide exposure episode in their lifetime. Nearly 80 million pounds of pesticides are used on U.S. lawns annually. One of the most popular weed killers, or herbicide, is 2,4-D, commonly part of weed and feed products. It's a carcinogen linked to certain cancers, especially non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and soft tissue sarcomas. It disrupts hormone, thyroid, immune system, and reproductive functions and causes nervous system damage. The most widely applied pesticide in the world, glyphosate, commonly known as Roundup, is also now recognized as a carcinogen. These formulations may include organophosphates, carbamates, phenoxy and benzoic acid herbicides like 2,4-D, MCPP, and MCPA, pyrethroids, and organochlorines. The fact is, and few would disagree with this, each individual site needs its own specific natural process solution. We need to stop putting down product just for the benefit of selling something. We know now that we are seeing phosphorus runoff into streams and waterways, and we are routinely working to kill every insect in the landscape. This is what is sold in our magazines. This is a horrible and damaging way of going about your business. To start, we need to reinforce and encourage comprehensive natural process and IPM training certification. This will help advise industry workers to seek out professional solutions and not result in a need for constant applications of chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, and over-fertilization. While this is controversial, municipalities and state governments need to enact legislation to allow for the expansion of the precautionary principle, in which a municipality, an HOA, or a city council can fully restrict chemical use in designated outdoor areas without being challenged in court. I don't think anyone believes that our industry would be completely destroyed if there were further restrictions placed upon the use of select chemicals and phosphorus fertilizers. This is a myth perpetuated by the chemical interests that pretend to be part of our industry, often under the cover of benign names that sound like environmental organizations, but are really just transparent shell groups designed to further the application of product and fight against any restrictions. 
Let's just tell it like it is and describe our organizations as what they are. Seems like a simple idea and entirely in keeping with the need to respect and plain speaking with the rank and file. Instead, we're led to believe a range of apocalyptic thinking whenever the EPA issues a press release. Have you ever wondered why our green industry and environmentally stewarding industry is at constant odds with the EPA? Why would that be if not for the fact that our industry is really led by the chemical industry? We need to disassemble this dishonest house of cards by starting with a firm resistance to calendar care and doubling down on consumer education about the benefits of natural process landscape care. The fourth topic couples with the knee-jerk acceptance of chemical use. If you want to get a sense of how incredibly pervasive the application of herbicides, pesticides, and phosphorus fertilizers are to your local community, simply go to the local big box store this spring or fall. You'll see, directly across from the entranceway, boxes upon boxes and case upon case of chemical product to spray and spread and spew on a repeated basis throughout the year. 78 million households in the U.S. use home and garden pesticides. Herbicides account for the highest usage of pesticides in the home and garden sector, with over 90 million pounds applied on lawns and gardens per year. Suburban lawns and gardens receive more pesticide applications per acre, 3 to almost 10 pounds per acre, than agriculture, less than 3 pounds per acre on average. Pesticide sales by the chemical industry average over $9 billion annually. As I've mentioned before, don't accept the industry magazine mantra that any control is a bad control. This is what we're being told whenever we hear of any movement toward restriction or limitations on the use of any landscape product. In fact, natural processes will usually yield better margins and result in a more manageable standard with regard to outdoor landscape care, if you think about it. You're spending more time pruning and cleaning bed areas during a landscape care visit rather than applying chemicals. With a carefully articulated discussion with the client about setting a looser standard for the results of this kind of care and how the look of the landscape needs to be developed to be less severely clipped and pristine, using natural processes can yield better margins and help you to stay within a more manageable standard. In order to make the fundamental sea change that's needed within such profitable multi-billion dollar industries, there are a number of things that the rank and file designer, specifier, supplier, and green industry worker can do to move the needle. One is to lobby industry for better products with more diluted concentration rates and natural organic products where available. Simply buying more natural and organic products and using natural process mineral and more benign amendments will encourage the suppliers to order and carry more of this kind of product. Over time, this can move the thinking further in a natural process direction. If you are personally concerned, you can write and be vocal about wanting change, sending letters and perhaps even editorial content to your local paper and to the local and national landscape organizations. This might be everything from an expression of your concern about the overuse of harsh pesticides and herbicides and phosphorus fertilizers to a positive review of a product that provides a more benign control that you'd recommend. Working together, we need to support reasonable restrictions and tighten the requirements where this is appropriate. Too often, we're put in a position to believe that any legislation that is being considered is bad. This is simply not the case, and we need to look clearly at what is being suggested and the actual and real impacts of the restrictions. I've mentioned this before, but years ago, a product by Ortho, Diazinon, was removed from the market. This was widely used as a landscape insecticide. 
In advance of the EPA restriction, we were told by our industry that it would mean the death of our industry for this product to be restricted. The noxious product was, of course, removed, and we immediately moved on. I don't think anybody's shaking their heads and crying about diazinon right now. The next topic is one that a lot of people really don't talk about much, but that is the need to consolidate industry organizations. In my view, there is too much regional redundancy for these organizations to really be effective. In my own region, the state landscape contracting organization is almost in constant turmoil and has struggled consistently over the last 20 years with budgets and maintaining membership. Operating in a parallel universe, our state nursery and landscape association is doing fairly well. With a consistent membership and reliable messaging, it has fared much better. The smart thing to do would be to merge the two organizations together. Most rank-and-file people, I think, would agree with this, but it is simply not an idea that's going to be embraced by either entity. All of us are weaker as a result. Green industry professionals can do a number of things to consolidate and reinforce the message within and in public regarding our state and regional landscape associations. One idea is to encourage meeting together for cost savings and increased participation. This is just a smart thing to do at a time when costs are becoming more of a concern and the need for a robust and well-attended meeting is singularly paramount. Further, we can support joint board meetings as well. Green industry members can help to organize joint annual meetings and encourage a consolidated annual slate of activity that not only saves money, but builds the green industry culture in the region and provides a more robust and broader dialogue about all of the topics we need to be discussing. We talked about it in another episode to some extent, and I think it bears repeating here that the sad state of landscape education is contributing to our general lack of available hired personnel and the declining levels that we are seeing from candidates seeking design and field positions. I went over a number of things, I think, in that episode that we could do easily to elevate and correct a number of the flaws in design education. But one key way to frame the discussion is to seek out ways to elevate craftsmanship overall. This is not only the hands-on craft of making and producing outdoor work, but also the general ethos around craftsmanship in general and the pride potential career path that is available for those that are seeking work as landscape designers, horticultural professionals, or outdoor landscape production workers. Working with regional landscape associations and suppliers, the industry needs to be a part of the process, each individual doing his or her part to teach practical design and construction applications. Suppliers can teach about products, and internships can be formalized as part of an association membership participation overall, encouraging new potential applicants. Another key and pervasive problem is the lack of licensing enforcement. I think it's safe to say that over the broad swath of the business overall, most landscape care companies are not licensed, bonded, or insured. That's not true in any other industry that I can think of. Can you think of any other industry in which there are as many unlicensed professionals practicing an open contravention to the law? I can't think of one. I think this is a unique landscape industry problem. And as such, we don't get much support from other professionals because, frankly, they can save money privately. And what's the harm in having an unlicensed company mow your yard and trim your trees on the weekend? So really, what is the real risk? Simply put, the risk for you and for the public is based in safety, 
reputation, professionalism, and the need for reasonably competitive cost controls. We don't allow ourselves to provide any professional message by standing by while this kind of activity takes place. While anyone can understand and need to feel empathy for folks trying to simply make a living, there's no reason to think that the lack of even the most basic business registration needs to be done at the expense of hardworking legal and licensed and bonded businesses in the same industry. Pricing for proposals is driven down, and material and labor can be offered at unrealistically low prices when there is no need for taxes or insurance or any kind of real overhead. This is not only an unlevel playing field, but a liability for both the consumer and the profession. First, we need to put teeth into licensing enforcement. This can be done by encouraging your local city council and homeowner association about the risks and liabilities associated with hiring unlicensed companies. Industry associations can make handouts for companies to distribute to homeowners and on the windshields of unlicensed company trucks. Small unlicensed companies can be embraced and encouraged to join our industry. Local legislatures can be asked to take legal action enforcing licensing laws as they exist, and HOAs can be encouraged to require licensed landscape care providers. Of growing importance over the next few years is going to be the argument for and against the installation and care of lawns, particularly in the West and Southwest. We're going to see unprecedented diminished water levels now. This is going to force the state and regional municipalities to make a choice they should have made decades ago. As lakes and rivers completely dry up and downriver states are forced to deal with a fraction of the water they received even five years ago from upstream areas, we're going to see a range of newly comprehensive restrictions placed upon irrigation usage and lawn areas. The industry, as you might expect, is formally fighting against this irresistible tide by claiming that lawns are good for the environment and couching this messaging as coming from benign-sounding organizations that are underpinned by chemical and lawn equipment and chemical interests. We need to keep messaging about how bad lawns are for the environment. Lawn maintenance produces more greenhouse gases than it absorbs, and lawns are biodiversity deserts that have contributed to vanishing insect populations. Residential lawns cover 2% of the U.S. land and require more irrigation than any agricultural crop grown in the country. In 2005, a NASA satellite found that American residential lawns take up 49,000 square miles, nearly equal to the entire country size of Greece. Lawns, which have been especially singled out as water-wasting culprits, are estimated to use about 40% to 60% of landscape irrigation in California, or just 3.5% to 5% of total statewide water use. Overall, landscape irrigation is estimated to account for about 50% of annual residential water consumption statewide. One simple but partial solution is to ban phosphorus fertilizer. Once a year, fall-only fertilizing can be mandated by HOAs and municipalities. Green industry professionals need to carefully study any new legislation restricting chemical usage put forth by the EPA and not only follow up with the common knee-jerk critical resistance supported by the hidden string pullers in our industry. A corollary to this is the excess use of artificial turf. We talked about artificial turf in another episode, and over time, my thinking has changed pretty completely about this. Basically, let's not advocate for plastic lawns. There are several environmental concerns associated with artificial turf, including loss of wildlife habitat, 
contaminated runoff, and migration of synthetic materials. In addition to ongoing and future massive non-degradable landfill waste, turf contains contaminants that are harmful to aquatic life, such as zinc, that have been found in stormwater runoff from artificial turf. Both infill particles and broken synthetic grass fibers can migrate away from yards or playing fields, contributing to microplastic pollution. Artificial grass can contribute to global warming by absorbing significantly more radiation than living grass, and to a lesser extent, by displacing living plants that could remove carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. Industry figures claim installation of a total of 265 million square feet of, of installed artificial turf in the U.S. as of mid-2020. If you're specifying or installing turf, you can require that recycled products be used. In any instance, you should be able to research the impervious surface calculations for the area in question. You should not exceed these calculations, and they should be part of any kind of turf installation. Impervious surface enforcement can be made a more serious issue. Educate yourself about the application and installation and maintenance and care of eco-lawn and flower turf areas. Know how to specify install areas of walkable native ground cover, and educate homeowners about the establishment and care of these items. Another topic that we talked about in a previous episode was the release of too many hybrid plant materials. We need to start to push for more habitat building and less color brightness. Plant releases seem benign, but they're slowly changing nature, as birds are not so easily drawn to these new plant materials as they are to native seeds and berries. One key aspect of the work of landscape designers that's been neglected and needs to be better understood and reinforced is work related to mitigation and remediation, rebuilding habitat, and reestablishing native canopy and the understory. Too often, designers lean in on ornamental and colorful material to the detriment of wildlife in the area, and in some cases, to the long-term durability of the landscape overall. Designers can be aware and educate consumers about diminishing habitat. Nursery people can speak with suppliers about not needing constant variety, and designers can blog, write, and post articles informing peers and the public about the need to double down on native planting. What is needed now is a reintroduction to core moral and ecological beliefs that many of us originally valued and an agonizing reappraisal of what we as an industry actually stand for and what we can do regionally to protect the real concerns of our profession, workers and licensing, rather than chemical sales, as we work instead to minimize chemical use, reinforce natural habitat, and in our own small way, offset some aspects of climate change. We are too often accepting dishonest representation and not leading ourselves into or out of a world that we are taking a large part in creating.